Lord, I pray that you would drop your word on us in an effectual manner. Hide me behind your word and the cross. Lord, don't let me get in the way. And we know that you won't. You are all powerful and you are sovereign. Lord, we trust that you will have these people hear what you want them to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your Bible to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. If you don't have a Bible today, please raise your hand. Anybody not have a Bible with them this morning? All right, we got a hand here. I think that's it. Well, I was going to say that if you're going to take a Bible home with you, you need to put it somewhere in the way. You need to put it in a place that you need to move and actually touch so that you might open it and read it. So I'll say that same thing to Nikki this morning. Put your Bible in the way. She won't even look at me. Look at this. <laughs> well, great work, church. Bring your Bibles. Great work. A few months ago, my wife Michelle called me at work. And typical of me when I'm at work sitting at my desk, I'll answer the phone to my immediate family like this. Yeah. Kind of terse. But Michelle wanted to tell me something that Maddie Ray had said to her on the way to school that morning. Maddie Ray said that she sits alone at lunch because her friends told her that her cucumbers and her green peppers smelled nasty. I was completely stopped in my tracks and I just started crying at my desk. I'm still getting me right now. Because all I could think of was my sweet, non-confrontational little girl sitting alone at the end of the table, with her little glasses on, eating her cucumbers and her green peppers. And of course, I know that this experience is normal. And this is a probably a good time for her to start learning these types of lessons. But thinking about her experience made me think about the instances where I was made fun of. I'm betting that some of you might be having a flashback to a time that you've been made fun of in your life. Maybe 30 years ago in the school cafeteria. Or maybe it was just last week. But I, I'm willing to guess that most of us in this room knows what it feels like to be on the outs. And unfortunately, ostracism doesn't end in cafeterias or on playgrounds. It spans into all kinds of areas of life because it seems that it's a part of being human since the fall. For Jesus, it started by being born of a virgin in a manger. A kid like that is never going to catch a break. And he didn't. That's where we'll start our text. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In this chapter, we get a small view of Jesus' life. In fact, in the preceding verses, we get a picture of him growing up without any advantage of good looks, for instance. And in this smaller section we're going to look at today, we see a trajectory of suffering in his life from a more common ostracism and, and more uh, understandable pain to the cosmic shift of becoming sin and it resulting in unparalleled punishment. Jesus was increasingly dealing with the symptoms of our sin, and then he dealt with the disease itself. And this is how we look at these verses this morning, as a trajectory towards the cross, starting in verse 3, where we see his plight. In verse 4, we'll see his pain. In verse 5, his piercing. And finally, in verse 6, we recognize his penal substitution for us. So there's this plight, pain, piercing, penal substitution. Four Ps of today. Ben is very excited. He shouldn't be. It's going to be much simpler than we think. Now, you may be asking, how do you know this passage in Isaiah 53 is about Jesus? And this is a good question. In fact, the Ethiopian eunuch asked the same question in Acts 8 while chatting with Philip in his chariot. The prophet Isaiah writes this section within a passage about the righteous servant who will justify many. For the Jews living during this time of the prophecy, it would not have been fully understood. In fact, before the death of Jesus, he had to reiterate his march into increased suffering to his disciples over and over again. But later on, Philip clearly saw that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus could be explained as the fulfillment of this prophecy, confirming that this suffering servant is indeed the Christ, which is very good news for those who believe. So let's look first at his human plight in verse 3. Again, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men, men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now there are two conditions here we see. The people's despising and his disposition. First, let's look at despising. It is noted twice for emphasis that he is despised. And to despise something is far more than a dislike. It's more than just a, a flippant hatred. It is a deep repugnance for, an active contempt that moves one into action. And a good example of someone expressing despising is at the end, T's going to love this, Pastor T.O., just get ready, at the end of episode eight of Star Wars. <laughs> and that's where we see Kylo Ren. And he sees in the sky his despised father's ship. And he commands his gunners, blow that piece of junk out of the sky! That's despising. <laughs> when one is despised, the things that the, that person cannot be tolerated and the things they identify with cannot be tolerated. 
Thus, it's common, rep- uh, common practice to reject those things or people. At minimum, this might mean to avoid, which we see here in this verse with men hiding their faces. They see Jesus walking down the road. They kind of turn, turn their backs to him in an attempt to conceal themselves and continue their conversation. At worst, the example might be a rejection of that like the woman caught in adultery, where a group of Pharisees and scribes would take a person, stones in hand, to make an example of them. Now for the woman, they would attribute the despising to her sin. And we see this practice throughout the Gospels, with examples like the man who was born blind in John 9, or the tax collector in the temple with the Pharisee in Luke 18. The Pharisees were always pointing out the sin and condemning the sinner. So where did the despising of Jesus come from? A man who was perfect to the law. What did they attribute that despising to? Well, we see a clue for that in this passage. In the second line, it was his disposition. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Jesus took on a disposition that was contrary to the culture's expectation for a well-studied Jew. He identified with the plight of sinners rather than the pretense of the Pharisees. It it goes beyond just being a a sad guy, grief. And that's the kind of sense that we get in the ESV. But I think that the the CSB version does a, a better job of translating the Hebrew. It reads, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. Now, I argue that this is a, a better sense because the Hebrew word translated grief is better expressed as disease or infirmity, sickness. It's a condition. Now, there's debate about if Jesus ever actually got sick. Did he get the flu? or cough, etc. But the point here is that Jesus' disposition is more akin towards those who were unclean, those who were outside the camp. He knew what sickness was. He identified with their plight. Yet he didn't actually have any law-controlling sin or condition that the Pharisees could ostracize or condemn him with. So that kind of identification and compassion with the weak made them despise him. His way of living was a powerful affront to their way of doing business. The last point in this verse. It's clear that he was despised by men and that he took on the disposition of the weak. But even still, we... We didn't value him. Nobody did. The weak, the strong, the impressive, the unimpressive. We didn't see his countercultural way of love as worthy to take note. In this passage, our identification 
isn't with the oppressed. It's with the oppressor. Not even the ones he identified with esteemed him. That shows us that he took on the most lowly state. So then if Jesus taking on the plight of his oppressors is worthy of praise, it's even more amazing that he would take on their pain in verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So you see, Jesus didn't stop with only identifying with us at an abstract level. He isn't like one of our friends who might say, I know how you feel, but you know they don't. They just couldn't understand. Rather, Jesus is the friend who actually does know how you feel because he entered into the pain humans experience on earth. He was hungry. He was tempted. He was accused. Hebrews 2, you might want to turn there, put a finger in Hebrews. We're going to go back and forth. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 reads like this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. As you and I know, it's a vastly different thing to watch something rather than to experience something. Just the point of view itself can make all the difference and vastly alter one's understanding. Imagine a corn maze. Have you ever been in a corn maze? Who's been in a corn maze? See, I'm from the Midwest, so we, that's the thing we do. Out here, it's less cornfields. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to help you out with this one. You can experience a corn maze in a few different ways. You can look at it from a very high view, perhaps a satellite image. And from this view, you get the, the whole picture. And you can work out the path in the maze more easily than from any other vantage point. Yet there's another closer view. Most corn mazes have an elevated platform in the side of the maze or maybe in the middle of the maze. That's a, a way to get a view of the maze from an angle. And sometimes that can be helpful for giving foresight into the path that needs to be taken. But to really understand the maze, you have to go through it. You need to see and remember the little signposts that serve as indicators of the next steps. You have to feel what it's like to have made so many turns that making out north and south is almost impossible. You need to learn that often the most obvious shorter path may actually lead to a dead end. Only after such experience and successful passage does one prove themselves as the expert guide to the way out. Now, surely one could guide from the higher views, but it doesn't produce the same confidence in those following the leader who actually have walked through the maze. See, the path to God was at one time straightforward. But after sin entered into the world, 
The way from point A to point B became an impossible maze with impassable chasms, turns, endless loops, waterlogged depressions, thunderstorms, wild animals, and dark nights. Like the maze runner. All of those are like our griefs and our sicknesses and our pains and our sorrows. And Jesus enters into the maze to conquer each one and invites us to follow him. He walks ahead to reveal what's next. He lays in that water, that, the, the depression of water, to form a bridge so that everybody might actually walk over him dry. He commands the mouths of the wild beasts to be shut. He stops the lightning from striking. He lights the path in the dark. And he washes the followers' feet throughout. Soon enough, it is made clear that the only way through this maze is this man himself. Nobody could make it out alive. Only he himself can carry it through, and his followers need only take each step in faith. Think about yourself. Can you visualize yourself in the middle of this cornfield? Standing in the hot sun with a plethora of barriers to getting out? It could have been that you've been diagnosed with a sickness or an infirmity, feeling as though you cannot take even one step further. Perhaps you've been disrespected or kicked to the curb in some way. The group that was supposed to guide you and be loving has pushed you out to the fringes, so it's difficult to follow. Or maybe your mind is heavy after walking around in circles and always ending up in the same place. Maybe you feel wholly unqualified to be in this field, fearing that along the way somebody's going to ask you, how did you get in here? Maybe that's like you are identifying in some way with those who are labeled sinner or unclean that we read about in the Gospels. But be assured this morning, Jesus knows your plight, and he knows your pain, and he understands. And not just because he is your God and your creator, but because he has entered into your weakness. He has walked in your shoes through the same tumultuous paths. Of course, as we read, even despite these truths, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. If you haven't already noticed, there's a, there's a trend here between the he and we. So take stock of it now. Our response to his selflessness is that of the Pharisees. We assume that his plight and his pain are just punishments from God to him alone. However, that is not the explanation we find in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Before we break down this section, I want to digress just a bit. Here we have a, it's a turning point 
between the relatable and the incomprehensible. Verse 3 and 4 are much easier to identify with because they're more common circumstances. However, here in verse 5, we have words like pierced, crushed, wounds on behalf of another. So it's much harder to, to wrap mon- one's mind around. The, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews taps into this in chapter 12, verse 3 and 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow re- weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So, so quite simply, we have to consistently look at the Savior who, who endured all things in this passage because our capacity to understand his escalating, suffer, uh, his escalating suffering in this passage decreases as we move through the verses. It's kind of like going hiking or mountain climbing. Some of us like hiking here. It sounds like there's going to be a hike in April. So each of us on a hike can probably understands the, understand the difficulties of a, ascending a small height. There may even be some in here who have climbed real mountains, like the Rockies or the Alps. But here's the thing. Doing those hikes or climbs are nothing like hiking Mount Everest. Everest sits just at about 29,000 feet as the highest mountain in the Himalayan mountain range. Outside of the Himalayas, the next highest peak is in the Andes at just under 23,000 feet. That's an entire mile shorter. So maybe you're thinking, at such heights, what's the big deal? An extra mile certainly isn't too different. Ah, ah, you've forgotten something. At about 26,000 feet, right in between Mount Everest and the next highest peak outside the Himalayas, there's something nefarious, the death zone. In the death zone, the body uses oxygen faster than it can be replenished at the 30% rate that the uh, surrounding air provides. That means that any exposed skin can become frostbite in a matter of moments. The brain swells more easily. So what happens is the body essentially shuts down. Most cannot last longer than 20 hours at that elevation. So therefore, Everest is never truly understood unless it is completed by a climber. Verse 5 is the death zone in this section. The flipping point from that which is more commonly understood by the masses of climbers to that which has only been experienced by a few martyrs following the way. All right, now we'll go back to the passage, back to the substance so we don't get it twisted. This isn't about trying to compare our suffering with his suffering. Rather, It's about him entering into our suffering, defeating every temptation that comes with it, and see it through to a crushing death. We know this from Hebrews again, chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those 
who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Therefore, no matter how high he calls us up the mountain, death zone or not, we can follow through with full confidence that no matter how much suffering comes our way, we are healed by his wounds. But at this point, it might be a good place for us to consider why all of this suffering has even occurred. I mean, why did he have to enter into the death zone? What exactly must I be healed from that caused all this suffering and required this man to endure it? The answer to that is sin. You see, the God who made us made us good and in relationship to love and worship him. But each one of us turned from his goodness and chose instead to love ourselves and worship that which was not him. We demonstrated this by disobeying his commands. We would call this sin. And the result of this choice was sin wreaking havoc in all creation, but worse, eternal judgment and separation from God forever, which is true death for those who do not turn back to him. And we could turn back to him because he loved us so much that he sent his son, this servant, into the suffering world to die for us. Now part of that death was him being pierced. And this piercing was for our sin. And the sin is the root cause of all the suffering and pains. See, for thousands of years, sin was only covered over through sacrifices for the purification of the flesh. So in that way, the law was informative to deal with the symptoms of sin, but could never truly take away sin. The disease now needed to be dealt with at the root. Sin needed a true cure rather than a temporary covering. And so it was Jesus who could bring that cure by being pierced, allowing his holy, innocent, unstained blood to flow and defeat the disease forever. Again, with his wounds, we are healed. Now, Colossians 1.20 says that he made peace by the blood of his cross. Peace with those who put him on the cross those who had iniquity and transgression, those who despised and rejected him, those who turned away. He who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we may become the righteousness of God. And what we do to receive that righteousness is repent of our sins and believe that Jesus shed his blood for our sins. And then he rose from the dead and is Lord of all. And in doing so, we have peace with God. Now think about this exchange. It's scandalous. How else can it be explained? Each verse in this passage is about how we have sinfully treated the Savior after he came to save us from our self-imposed situation. How he entered our plight, bore our pain, and took the piercing we deserve so that we can be healed by repenting of our sins and turning to him in faith. Believing 
that what he has done on the cross cleanses us from all sin. Again, with his wounds, we are healed. This is very good news for us. Because our piercing, if it had been us, would have had no other effect than our physical death. But the blood of Jesus is truly powerful. Hebrews 10.10 says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The healing is sure, despite all the ways in which we are undeserving. Indeed, we are scandalously healed. And because of this healing, we are also forever sealed. Consider what the writer of Hebrews states in chapter 9. Verse 13, For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The purification the blood of Jesus provided was executed by the three persons of the Trinity. He himself did all the work. So there was no vain attempt through a purification process that was carried out by a fallen priest and a ruined sinner. Every element of the redemptive work of Christ was carried out by the perfect God. Therefore, we can take great confidence that the work does not have to be done again for anyone, anytime. This is why when Jesus was crushed, he said, it is finished. Those healed are forever sealed. Amen. So what does this mean for you and I today? It means that we can live in a newness of life, free, not considering our condition in this wasting body to be a fatal diagnosis. We, t we can take hope that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We may in various ways feel the effects of sin in our body and around the world. One way is after falling back into sin that sent our Savior to the cross, we can remember sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Another way is after getting sick by infection or disease, and that feeling of weakness and infirmity can certainly weigh down even the most joyful person. But those in such a condition can take heart that if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give, you, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. One may turn on their TV to see wars and hear of rumors of wars, but they can take assurance that when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maybe you've been persecuted for nothing other than the name of Jesus. Philippians 1, take heart, take, take heart firm in one spirit. 
with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. All those going through any of these circumstances or similar ones can be assured that the exercise is no longer in vain because Jesus has overcome the world's calamities and has proved it in his resurrection. See, after Christ rose from the dead, it was clear that his blood was accepted by God not only to cover sins or pass over as in Egypt, but to wash clean and justify. There is power in the blood It is effectual to bring grace upon grace, far above sin upon sin. See, those who follow him are healed and sealed by the blood of the lamb who is slain and who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise forever and ever. There is no greater gift and no greater God. Continue to verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again, we're back at this foolish we. But just in case, for some reason, somebody thinks that they're not included in this description of the we, This verse clears up any confusion. All we, everyone. I appreciate the the practical description by Isaiah. It takes a phrase like all have sinned and puts a relatable action to it for those who who might not have thought too deeply about what sin is. In sin, there's a there's an inherent turning away from the God when sinning. That turning might be like that of a sheep a small step off track away from the flock so that one step away gives way to another step and the distance grows until the sheep is too far from the fold and exposed to elements and predators. They get themselves into all sorts of harm because they're generally helpless creatures. So a simple step off the path can be detrimental even if it's small or careless. Or the turning may take a more rebellious form, a stubborn turn against the way, a hard right or left, a my way is better than your way action. And think about that maze again. After hours of what seems like moving in circles, the group comes to a fork, and the leader says, all right, we're going to go this way. But one member says, I'm done with this. I'm not going that way. I'm going to go this way. Now, that person goes along without the safety of a guide and without others to comfort them when they encounter the challenges of the maze. That is, again, impassable. But in either instance, whether it's a small turn or a a harsh turn, the end result is the same. It's a Gradual departure or a stark exiting that ends in isolation, exclusion, and failure. And this is something that we 
understand because we've experienced it. So again, I like the language of Isaiah. But here's the thing. The right direction is difficult to discern. It's difficult to discern when there are many groups of sheep, all with different shepherds. And the maze, that's difficult to navigate if there are different signposts or directions to choose from. So now, imagine what happens when we combine these two analogies. We drop the sheep in the middle of the corn maze. You got straying sheep, multiple shepherds yelling across the maze, this way, this way. There's no clear signs to depend upon. It's hopeless. Not a single one of these sheep is getting out. They need a good shepherd. A shepherd with a rod and a staff. A shepherd who understands the sheep. The only one who can go the route alone and succeed. In John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He takes this whole concept of sheep following a shepherd and plays it out in the context of him being the shepherd and his people being the sheep. Now, all of this harkens back to our passage. It also harkens back to Psalm 23, where David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. So let's not forget what we've already explored, that Jesus took on our plight and our pain, which Isaiah draws a direct line to later in the passage in verse 7. There he says that this man was led, was like a lamb led to slaughter. So we have kind of this full circle where Jesus is the good shepherd who carries a rod and a staff. And those elements are used exactly as they should be. The writer of Hebrews states that the high priest, also Jesus, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also subject to weakness. This is the situation where the shepherd would use a staff to nudge those sheep, which are gradually moving towards the L and then narrowly miss being split off from the rest of the group. That would be the, the staff. Then in, Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, it reads, no, one, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is where the rod comes into play. Sometimes the sheep just isn't going to heed the gentle nudging of the staff. They're stubborn. They want to go their own way. So the sheep requires a, a hit from the rod to get back on course, lest they be devoured by the wolf sitting around the corner. But the only shepherd we can trust with this type of authority is the good shepherd. There are a lot of bad shepherds who have led sheep astray with the staff and they've abused with the rod. So if we've all gone astray, all turned away, I'd like to submit to you that you need a good shepherd. One who actually proved his love for you as a lamb led to slaughter. One who understands your plight and your pain and who took your piercing as a sheep. Hebrews 13, 11 through 13 reads, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by a high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. 
Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. This is what Isaiah means when he writes that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is the place where we marvel. After all these constant we and he statements, we find that not only did he take on our plight, our pain, and our piercing, he bore the iniquity, the sin of us all. So that all this work, all of the pain and all of the sorrow was not in vain, but it was effectual for those he came to save. If we would like to add another P, as I said, we can call this penal substitution. The London Baptist Confession, which we ascribe to here at Anacostia River Church, gives a good summary, and it's chapter 11 of justification. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified, and did by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, making a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given, as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. The punishment for sin, that is death, was transferred from the sheep to the shepherd. There was no iniquity of the sheep that was unpunished. It was all on the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Spurgeon, the 19th century English preacher, put it this way, sin I may compare to the rays of some evil sun. Sin was scattered throughout this world as abundantly as light. And Christ is made to suffer the full effect of the baleful rays, which stream from the sun of sin. God, as it were, holds up a burning glass and concentrates all of the scattered rays in a focus upon Christ. In this way, we come to understand that Jesus is not only human, but he is indeed God. Throughout this passage, we've looked at the humanness of Christ, the way in which he condescended, came down to us, Yet here we find that this same man was able to bear the unparalleled weight of sin and the punishment that came along with it. This could only be accomplished by he himself. Shailen puts it like this. See, only a human can substitute for human lives, but only God can take the wrath of God and survive. Therefore, the substitute for our penalty can actually accomplish the work, and we can have great hope. Romans 8, 1 through 4 gives a wonderfully concise description of what that work has done for us. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So then it is chastisement for our peace. His wounds for our healing, his righteousness for our sin. It's not a fair trade. And what are you going to do with your sin if you cannot give it to the one who can actually atone for it? There are two options. You can either lay it at the cross for the one worthy to substitute, to pay for himself by his own effectual blood, or you could take it with you to your grave and pay the wage of eternal condemnation yourself. See that, the transaction between God and man is either by he himself or you yourself. There's no other way. It's not a negotiation. Now look, you may have all the arguments in the world for why you despise the name of Jesus and reject this message. But all of those arguments are still refuting the most compassionate, loving, unimaginable story of all time, where the God of everything takes on weak flesh to die in the most horrible manner for a bunch of people who rejected him and nailed him to a cross. From any human standpoint, it doesn't add up. It's ludicrous, it's crazy, it's reckless. You could fill in the blank. It just doesn't, it gets me every time. It disarms every argument that I've ever thrown at it. The why, you know, why did God do this? Why did God do that? It ceases to be material when I consider what he actually did. Quite honestly, I can't see a reason that somebody would make this up. From the earthly standpoint, there is nothing to be gained from this whole story. The world's view is that it is foolish. And the world can call it whatever they want, but I'm going to boast in it. The story of my salvation. So in a few moments, we're going to sing about that love of God. Consider what he's done for you and I. A people who despised the one who entered into our plight took our pain, endured our piercing, our piercing so that he might be our substitute. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have done this thing. You have accomplished a work that none of us could have. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but you have made us alive in Christ. Father, we ask that this would not be lost on us. We ask that we wouldn't, we wouldn't kind of put it into a sanitized box, but that we would, we would remember that you had been on this trajectory for us. First, taking on our plight and our pain, the humanness of it. But then you also took our piercing and became our substitute in a divine manner, fully man and fully God. Father, 
Give us grace. Give us remembrance of this thing. Often. Don't let it be lost on us. In Jesus' name, amen.